In our Defining a Genre series, we've been working our way through video game genres and chatting about games which we think were particularly impactful on us, on video game culture and on other games in the genre. In this episode, it's the turn of the first-person shooter. Hello and welcome to another episode of Octal FM. I'm Gelada. And I'm Sefran. And today we are back with our recurring segments of defining a genre. We've looked at other genres that I now can't remember. RTS. We kind of yep. did RTS twice, didn't we? Because yeah, we, we did, did RTS like a, twice without realising it. Yep. I think we included mostly the same games. Yeah, we've done JRPGs. Yep. MMOs. MMOs. We have done MMOs. And we did platformers. Oh yeah, of course. So there we go. So now we're doing first-person shooters. Mm-hmm. Like, first-person shooters, we both played a lot of when we were younger. Like, less yes. so now. I don't know about you, but less so now. I don't play a lot of first-person shooters. But uh, definitely back in the day was a big part of my, like, not like my very early, very early gaming. I didn't really play a lot of first-person shooters. It wasn't really until I got a PC and yeah. then probably sort of like trying to think what would my first like maybe like battlefield 2 era was maybe maybe a bit before that must have been before that as well counter-strike a little bit like it was quite yeah. i was quite late to the fps scene i think generally um, but i think it was a very much a defining part of our sort of gaming identity mm. well especially when we were playing games together mm, uh, mm. As, as friends like that would be one of the game types that we would play quite a lot beyond right our console gaming right right exactly. uh, like you say particularly when we both started to have sort of like decent gaming pcs so yeah. like we started off playing things like your typical golden eye your turok mm. your perfect like i remember playing um turok where we had like set up our own rule set so we could only have like sniper battles yeah and we allowed to like go from one side of the map to another yeah you know and that was great fun but of course there are only so many times you can kind of do that so we then transitioned to like playing quite a lot of like unreal tournament 2004 i think that was mm. the first one that we properly played together yeah um because like i can remember like getting the demo version of ut 2004 oh, yeah. and yeah, it, was, yeah. it was like only onslaught mode where you had like the vehicles and stuff like that yes and then we sort of graduated into sort of playing quote-unquote esports mm. um we, we played sort of like semi-competitive counter-strike yeah and then I proceeded to go on to be absolutely set with Call of Duty mm, yes. uh, for, a, for, for a while. But like you say, now I think we've mostly moved past that, partially down to maybe like fatigue of the genre not being particularly mm. different, which is what we're going to cover in the episode. And also, let's be perfectly realistic, we're, we're old, so we're not as good yeah, at first not as good. shooters. I definitely found that playing Valorant, like I did for a while, like when Valorant came out, I played quite a big chunk of that. And was okay at it, but the time and effort required nowadays, and and back then as well, like we were terrible at Counter-Strike in the grand scheme of like, you know, actual competitive stuff, (laughs) Um, you know, but it was easier to not notice that as much, I guess, because it wasn't so like there was less like laddering and things like that. So Mm, just playing mm. on random public servers, you would get away with, you know, just no online 
way of doing it at that point was the like right. other than going onto a forum and having it like manually done by like right. you know a moderator so you never no, really like, say, knew you could just tell from like the random servers you played on but now it's like matchmaking and you know it's a lot yeah. of effort and you've got a lot, natural, like, like relo status and stuff like that yeah exactly exactly so yeah i think that some of that is sort of is, is sort of part of it as well um and but we, we we're going to try and stick up, stick to first person shooters specifically. So, for example, we're not going to be talking about um, things like puzzler and adventure games. Yeah, so, for example, yeah. like Mist and Ultima and things like that, which are first person games, but there's no shooting in them. Yeah, and we're also going to be trying to make sure we stay away from any game where it's either first or third person. Mm, so, for yeah. example, like the one the example I gave there was um, Players Unknown Battlegrounds because you can play either right. third or first person for yeah, that, like Gears which, of War. Yes, well, Gears of War is like one of those where it's so important to the gaming landscape, but it's not an FPS mm. in the strictest sense. So, yeah. yeah. But what is an FPS, Jal? Tell me, what is it? What is a first-person shooter? I mean, you are basically playing in first person. You can normally see your gun. It's funny, actually, it started like in the middle, right? And then before yes, it sort of moved over to, to the right. Yeah. Um, and you are running around, yeah, and you're and you're shooting people is very kind of like classic you're normally you're in like direct control so sort of different from maybe arcade games where you, it's like an on rails shooter yep, um, yep it's not really a first person shooter in that kind of regard not in the typical regard of those games at least no yeah exactly and i think the the thing about first person shooters is there's often quite a heavy focus on the feel right the feel of the movements the feel of the guns and weapons that you have and the and and the pacing as well mm. of the game like they tend to be fairly high paced and they tend to be sort of yeah like high action high paced kind of game i think what's Not quite interesting is that when you see some of the games which you think are you know more subdued or slightly more realistic in their approach to how fast you are or you know how quickly you can move around etc and then you sort of look at that from a third person perspective maybe using sort of like a a dev camera or something you're insanely fast yeah um, yeah like i remember watching like a breakdown of like the acceleration of character models within things like half-life for example and you'd be like the fastest runner in the world if you can yeah. move at the speeds that you, you move at but if you go slower than that it feels wrong from the, a player's perspective it's funny isn't it you're yeah, not you're so. not walking in any of these games no no <laughs> you're, you're, you're sprinting and the acceleration is also very high as well yeah. in fact it's one of the reasons why very very recently i've been playing doom 2016 mm. uh and one of the reasons that i was getting a little bit of motion sickness was for that very reason that the acceleration is so massive mm. that you go from zero to a hundred immediately and there's no build-up time and, and that sort of game design is is only really a thing in games like first person shooters yeah i guess it's sort of goes with that feeling of of fluidity and responsiveness that you need from a game you mm -hmm. know because actually we'll 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 probably end up touching on sort of responsiveness and and games feeling responsive or not responsive and how and, and when that works and doesn't work so that'll probably come up in discussion because definitely games where first person shooters where the controls aren't responsive and fluid and and you know it's almost like you're given an illusion of control sometimes as a player, especially with console FPSs, and we'll talk about that. Like, it's very, very important. Like, technically, what the mechanics of a first-person shooter is, is hugely important. And the thing that we're going to be talking about first off today is probably the game which I would say defines FPSs as a whole. Like, you, if you only could talk about one game, I'd say this would be that one game, right? Right. Uh, and that's his Doom, just yep. the original Doom on, uh, well, everything, basically. Yeah, I mean, now, um, yeah. <laughs> I think, was it originally MS-DOS? Would that have been right? I have no idea. I'm I feel like it yeah. would have been. It was released in 1993 by id Software, 
and it, it kind of just invented the FPS genre as we knew it really mm. was uh, its predecessor of Wolfenstein 3D which is very much the same game but like less refined yeah is arguably sort of like the defining fps but doom sort of just did more with that concept and made the environments nicer made the enemies more interesting made the guns a lot more varied and interesting the movement was nicer and cleaner so that's why i think doom is by far and away the quintessentially defining fps game yeah i think also what's interesting about doom and it as well is like doom was technically extremely good you know they they the lead programmer who worked on doom and worked at it um john carmack is legendary as a, as a sort of gaming as a figure in in video yeah. games and yeah, yeah. like in he invent there's like algorithms in code that he wrote that have like been analyzed afterwards because he's like come up with this ridiculously performant way of doing a particular thing that you need to be able to do in order to have sort of like a good 3d game engine for example Mm -hmm. that is partly i think why something why doom and id as well succeeded is just that they were also very very technically good and actually that's a bit of a theme through some of the games that we're going to talk about is is sort of like that like high technical quality um seems to help a lot with being a an fps that kind of pushes the genre forwards um maybe more so in more so than in other games again because of that need to be very responsive and and you know and sort of very like action and fast paced it's a very demanding it's not like battle chess you know where the game doesn't have to be fast yeah um, yeah yeah you know it's 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 that kind of thing i he is very much the I would say he's the person who's most responsible for the FPS games we know them today. Mm. Um, the the way in which, he, like you said, the way in which he coded those games and, and created the engine in which these games were created in is still being used today. Mm. You know, yeah. uh, I can't even remember what version of id tech software it is nowadays and what it's been spawned off into, but mm. it's influenced basically every other major game engine, regardless of it's FPS or not, yeah. for the most part. Um, and I think it's kind of interesting as well that he's he's kind of moved away from that. He he, he works very much on VR and AI based stuff right now. Yeah, there's like a story, isn't there, um, about like there's all the kind of like Oculus, Zenimax, Carmax stuff mm. where because he joined them as their CTO and he's full time. He basically saw the Oculus Rift like a dev kit or whatever and was just absolutely blown away. And he's one of the reasons why they were kind of successful, really, because he bought like a bit of prestige to, to oculus yeah. the, you know in the very very early days when they were just doing like dev kits basically and we can't talk about john carmack without talking about his uh his right hand man as it were or his other mm. um contemporary within the business of john romero right mm. uh, much more of a divisive figure i think mm. he was sort of the lead designer for doom at the time yeah. and he's absolutely the hype man as well like he he's a lot more uh, outspoken he's a lot more sort of uh, uh, verbal about things but i and i don't want to downplay it too much but i i can't necessarily say how much credit is given for the creation of the game Mm. to to romero i'm not sure but he's he's very much a kind of a person that goes from like uh place to place with his name alone being the selling point i would say Mm. Um, he's been involved in quite a lot of different companies and games along the years none of which have done phenomenally well if i'm honest with you so yeah that but he's he always comes up when you talk about 
Doom, it's always these two, mm. you know, Carmack and Romero. And yeah. um, I just think it's an interesting parallel between the two people, considering one is reasonably quiet, very incredible programmer, mm. and one is this sort of really loud mouthpiece that sort yeah. of shouts to the rooftops. Uh, tends to happen, doesn't it? Look at Apple, for example, as well. But Doom itself is, is, is important, but what in particular made it so important was a few key factors. One was the fact that it was one of the first games that felt good to play, at least anyway, that introduced proper 3D environments. Because mm, right. up until this point, things like Wolfenstein and some of its other sort of like clone effectively type games, they had a very sort of like faux 2D, 3D environment. Think think things like uh, Maze Runner, um, you know, right. like what that old Windows screensaver was based on. Yeah, you it's know, where you're you, doing you know like, the look. Yeah, it's the sort of like you're really using weird tricks to get 3d right rather than an actual kind of 3d game yeah. engine that is actually sort of doing true 3d in inverted commas and and doom did that uh doom was able to create 3d environments that you were able to move around very quickly uh not mm. only that but it was also had some verticality to it as well mm. um there were stairs and i know that sounds really simple today but having extra like an, another level of uh, axis of a movement is is very different to what was gone on at the time, you know, being able to right. go up and down environments. Now, bearing in mind at this point, you couldn't aim up or down. Um, it was, you aimed forward and you sort of yeah. just had to sort of guess where you were aiming. Because again, it wasn't mouse movement at this point either, you have to remember. Yeah. Uh, this was all keyboard based. Um, but that still didn't stop it from feeling fantastic to move around and shoot and everything just felt very meaty, very, very quick and responsive. It was, mm -hmm. it was just good. And the last thing I think that is the most important thing to point out, why Doom did so well and why it was like one of the things that people bought MS-DOS or Windows 95 or whatever <laughs> for was because it was available for Doom. You know, you, it was the most easily accessible game. I think it was even released as like kind of like freeware for after a while. You know, mm. you could download like the majority of the game completely for free. Mm. You could pay like a small fee to kind of like unlock the rest of the game or something. Right. You know, in 1993, that's crazy, you know, like, mm. but as a result of it, it got the name out there and everyone knew what Doom was and everyone mm. wanted this on their computer. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, and like you said as well, like, like it's software and, and Doom and sort of what they started with Doom and, and Wolfenstein 3D, I guess, like, they went on to build whole game engines, which have now powered you know, loads of games that can kind of, in a way, draw their inspiration from the sort of technical... Mm pioneering that happened to make doom possible you know things like things like call of duty which we've already yep. talked about and yeah yeah you know, Prey tech, and yeah. things like that like there's a lot of games that are that are based that use um its uh, game engine as well as also that they were one of the first kind of major gaming companies with a major game that they made their source code completely open source mm, so yeah. people would look at how how it was made and then proceed to make their own things with it yeah and some of the earliest sort of well-known mods were made using quakes uh mm. source code to make games which then influence mods in other sort of very important games mm. which we're going on to talk about on our next one in fact yeah there's not a late, lot of games that have like their source code open sourced um i guess doom again because of the technicalness of it i think sort of warrants it and it was sort of in an earlier stage where that was a bit easier and the code was it was still the game was small enough you know that it yes, was, it was yeah. relatively straightforward um but yeah talking of like thinking about games that have released game engines and i guess not the first one but like or companies that have released game engines um the next game is we're sort of jumping ahead to 1998 with half-life mm. right very similar story in a way in that it wasn't the first 
type of its own game, you know, like, bear in mind, there's only five years between the release of Doom and Half-Life, but you wouldn't think it looking at them. Mm. But it was very much the game that defined the FPS genre at the time, in my opinion. Mm. It was made by Valve, Valve Software, I don't think, I think it's just called Valve, I think it's called Valve Software. And at the time it was published by Sierra Online or Sierra Studios, Mm. um, which have done many, many things in the past. And it was, it was with them and even during the PlayStation 2 release of the game, up until the point where Valve stopped it because they just wanted to digitally distribute everything themselves yep. on on what then became Steam. But that's a whole part of the story we need to talk about. Mm, yeah. And the thing about Half-Life is like the main thing, like although it was already becoming a thing, but we're really moving away now from first-person shooter games that are, like you've said in the notes, like shooting galleries. Yep. You know, like now you've got a first-person shooter that has a narrative element to it it's the you know the mechanics of first person shooters are very much there but you're now you know there's there's a lot more depth going on at this point and uh, you know there's a story there are characters there's there's a world here that you're building much more obviously than things like doom um and yeah I mean, I would say that for the most part, Half-Life achieved what Quake wanted to achieve, Mm. which was Quake wanted to be this relatively like narrative driven experience, but it failed in that regard. I mean, it it succeeded in the regards of being an absolutely amazing first person shooter game that spawned like a million other mods and stuff, Mm. which then got ported into Half-Life's own engine. Yeah. but Half-Life managed to achieve that more cinematic narrative-based approach, so much so that they hired a professional writer to work right. on Half-Life Story. Yeah. Um, a gentleman called, oh, was it Alex Laidlow? Is that right? Something like that. And he, when writing the story, wanted to show the game, or rather the world, before it all went wrong, mm. which is why you have the very slow, quote-unquote, normal opening of the game, mm. where you're you're in the, the train and you're walking through the facility getting ready for this experiment, because it wanted to sort of make it look like a real place. Like yeah. you are actually this scientist and you are trying to do this job and giving you some context for why there are enemies running around that you have to try and either shoot or avoid or whatever. Right. And you, you felt that slow build as a result and it worked incredibly well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think also the there's sort of a lot of areas where Half-Life really was really raised the bar for first person shooters. I think the thing that always comes to mind for me is really about level design, right? Mm-hmm. In fact, I think some of the games that we're going to talk about, you know, really took a step back uh, in terms of level design compared to Half-Life. So that's sort of the thing that always really stands out to me is like, you know, from a sort of FPS genre, you know, as a game, that was sort of a big part of what Half-Life did. It showed that these games could be narrative Mm -hmm. and, you know, story driven and um, also with excellent level design. Yeah, absolutely. And other than the towards the end of the game where that sort of broke down a little bit and it turned into a considerably more like quake mm. up until that point where you go into is it zen i think the area is called mm. yeah that that level design shines through the the way in which they draw your attention to things on the screen the way in which they sort of subvert expectations by like right. throwing you off you know going in the wrong direction or providing the right amount of health at the right time with upgrades yeah. and pickups and stuff like that it was all very very well uh, choreographed and very well researched and play tested it's interesting like half-life not many games even now do like fully interactive all the time like half-life and and, mm. and, and the yeah, later they take control games away as well. sometimes yeah like uh, it never takes away control from you even when a character is talking to you or something important is happening so valve that was a very conscious decision by valve mm. with half-life and you know that requires quite a lot of careful design i think the other thing that the game did 
is is almost not within itself, but within the game engine and the way in which the studio handled it. Because the engine itself was originally just id Tech Two, which is just a you know a continuation of Quake's engine, and hmm. and they uh, they changed it so much they kind of made their own engine out of it called Gold SRC. And that was then used to create quite a lot of incredibly famous and very, very uh, influential mods. Mm. Uh, much like we talked about how Doom sort of created mods, Half-Life then took mods from Quake and then proceeded to make them themselves. Bear right. in mind, at first it was players making them for themselves using Half-Life, but then Valve would then go on to hire these modders to, yeah. to work for them. Um, probably the most famous one is probably Counter-Strike, yeah. um, which in itself, in a way, defines the FPS genre, I would argue. Yeah. The only reason we're not talking about that more in depth is because we are planning to do a full episode on Counter-Strike as a whole at some point. Mm, yeah. Other games include Team Fortress, uh, yeah. which then obviously led on to Team Fortress 2, things like Day of Defeats, yeah. and then those also then played into things like Left 4 Dead and Portal. Mm. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this has huge influence in it this is sort of from the era and not that this has gone away but it's a lot different now where you know that was a common story you know a modder or a team of modders getting hired to make turn their mod into a full game you know also see on the other side of things in the rts lands you know defense of the ancients for example which yeah is now now valve as well and that yeah. and it's funny because dota was also originally on starcraft and then warcraft as well like there's all like there's you know there's a lot of games that spend a long time as mods sometimes before they become a, a real game like counter-strike as well was was counter-strike for ages before they they took it on board mm-hmm. uh, one of the games that i think was quite important to discuss which kind of doesn't come up in any of the other games we talk about uh, regarding uh, fps as a whole is system shock because that came out surprisingly earlier than half-life mm. it came out in 1994 believe it or not mm. which it's crazy because when you look at it and you watch it play, play through, it's ridiculously advanced for its mm. time. Like, you think this came out at the same sort of time as Doom, you know, mm. but it doesn't feel like it at all. It's very impressive. But System Shock was a lot more slow and narrative-based. And I feel when Half-Life came out, I think System Shock 2 was only just around the corner. And at this point, the FPS genre sort of diverged a little bit because mm. you had sort of your more typical shooter games, things like your Quakes, your um, Half-Lives, things like your Counter-Strikes, and then some of the games we're going to talk about later. But then you also went on more of a narrative-based RPG fight feel with things like System Shock 2, Deus Ex, I'm thinking of, mm. uh, things like your Bioshock, which yeah. doesn't come up in this, but we've talked about that in the past on a retrospective episode. Um and it's almost like those two games were very influential to one another, but then they kind of split off and made their own small niches within the genre. Mm. Yeah, it's a good point. It's a good point. Yeah. And so far we've been talking about, you know, PC first person shooters, you know, where you're playing with a keyboard or a keyboard and mouse. And, you know, it's widely sort of accepted, it's even now to some extent, but especially back then, that like the way to play first person shooters was keyboard and mouse. Like yeah. we've not talked about GoldenEye. In fact, GoldenEye isn't, isn't on our list. Spoilers. And when you actually think about GoldenEye and you think about GoldenEye's controls, you know, with a single analog stick, uh, like it definitely wasn't a superior or decent way to play first person shooters compared to mouse and keyboard, right? GoldenEye very very much played like Doom in the sense that you only had sort of one measure of moving forward and backwards and moving and turning around in itself was fairly clunky, let alone looking up and down. Yeah, and it had such a strong uh, auto lock on that yeah. it effectively you didn't really need to move the like you were just moving around and then mm-hmm. the gun was aiming the rest. You could manually aim, but you didn't need to, right? And so in that way, you're right. It was exactly like Doom. Um, but where this 
this, you know, we did start to see twin stick first person shooters, but there's a really, really obvious twin stick shooter that yeah. we have to talk about. And that is Halo Combat Evolved. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, although there are plenty of FPS games on consoles that came beforehand, which are excellent or in many ways more enjoyable in some ways, um, <laughs> but you can't deny that Halo wasn't the defining FPS on consoles. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And it's funny because, you know, I did a bit of research into Halo before before this episode and I sort of fell down a bit of a rabbit hole and I'd forgotten some of the, like, going really far back, the backstory behind Halo. Like, it wasn't even going to originally be a first-person shooter. It was going to be, like, a kind of RTS thing. Yes, yeah. You know, Bungie had made... Was it Myth that Bungie had made? Um, yes, and, they'd made Myth, that's right. And, and like, that was sort of like this kind of, like, RTS... Not RTS, but sort of kind of RTS-style game. And, yeah, they were experimenting with a bunch of things, and it was going to be on PC. And then, at one point, it was going to be on mac right yeah, because yeah, they wanted like, specifically get into like mac world and like unveil this project to them and then microsoft sort of swooped in and bought them <laughs> yeah like they went and saw steve jobs yeah and like yeah. they showed them it and he was like it was very impressed with like the real you know just the the graphical quality and things like this but at that point it still didn't look like halo it was still no. a rts like it was you know it was it was still third person and yeah like then microsoft released the xbox and bungie as a company i think were always intended to like be bought like that was like a, a, an exit yes, kind of thing yeah. and so microsoft approaching them and being like hey we really need something really killer for for this for this console we're launching like come and become an in-house developer second party yep. dev effectively and 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 you know bring halo to the, to the xbox even at that point it still didn't look like halo it in the end I didn't realize this until I was looking into it a little bit more. But Halo was very, very rushed towards the end. It took a, it spent a, they spent a very long time not really knowing what to do, and then mm. rushed a lot of this, especially the single player at the end. And actually, that shows when you, if you look critically back at Halo and some of its shortcomings, you know things like reused assets, you know reused level designs, and all of this kind of stuff. Like, like that, you do sort of you can sort of see where the corners were cut um the multiplayer didn't even nearly make it in because yep. they were because they were so tight you know so but i think the thing about halo is again we're coming back to that like game mechanics thing yep. that really really pushed pushed things forwards with halo and there was a bunch of things that halo did exceptionally well that just really made it fit together as a game mm -hmm. and really like again raise the bar for all fps then had to compare them you know make sure that they were as good at, at, yeah. at sort of from a feel point of view as halo these were very much the games that define the genre and, and you can say that because every time these games came out there were always x clones of them like right. there was the doom clones there was a the half-life clones and yeah. then there was the halo clones or yeah. halo killers yeah you exactly know? and so many companies tried to ape that success and to try and copy it yeah uh, and several games came reasonably close and did a mm. pretty good job but you never seem to kind of hit that same lightning in the bottle moment of these games you know right whether it was luck which i think it was to some extent and perseverance and sort of like trying something that was a little bit outside of the typical conventions of game design these games in particular with halo is one of them going from effectively an rts game to a first person shooter just seemed to get everything right that fit together neatly even yeah. if it was mostly unintended. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it, you're right. I think some of it was good, was good, clever design and some of it was just luck that they got certain aspects of the design right. Yeah. Um, like, for example, 
like the vehicles feel really good and that was yes. something that they focused on and that's and, you know f- from an earlier point actually they they focused on making sure the vehicles felt good and like that was a huge factor for it i think i think if i remember rightly as like a bit of an anecdote that the reason that they wanted to try it from a first person viewpoint of view is they enjoyed zooming in on the warthogs driving yeah. around within an rts setting and that would be cool to drive one of those yeah exactly and exactly that's sort of that. where they designed the game to be like from there yeah. on exactly that i think some of it was like creative limitations so we've talked about how consoles feel inferior from a sort of aiming point of view compared to mouse and keyboard Hmm. and bungie tried really hard to like i said with goldeneye it was a really strong hard lock right when you were on a on a character but with halo it was a much more of a soft lock much more of a guide so you still felt like it was you and mm-hmm. it, you still felt like you were the one nailing those headshots, even though the game was actually assisting you. Um, in fact, the Halo, Halo on PC was massively easy because, like, it was the game was designed for like you know difficult to use controls with the soft lock. Yeah. And once you take even with the soft lock removed, the game was still very easy because of the shape of hitboxes and things like that. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a huge factor as well. I think also the two weapon limit, right? So where you had games like Half Life, where you would you know have a one you have one through eight on your keyboard which would be your weapons with halo they restricted it to two because they you know it was a console and you wanted to have straightforward controls for changing weapons between weapons you want like a fancy menu or anything so you've just got to swap but that also affects then the the play style because then you're swapping weapons all the time you're mixing things up you can only take two with you you know so you're using them for different scenarios and that adds to that pace and they tied that in because halo has like a famous and actually destiny has it as well like a like a combat loop right a short combat loop where like every fight takes like 30 seconds like 30 seconds to a minute and Mm. then there's a pause and you can regroup and think about things for a bit and then it starts again uh, and that's also a huge factor, again, sort of tying in with the, the weapons and tying in with just the design of the game. And the AI as well was very was very strong and was known for sort of, I say strong, like looking back, it's not, but it just no, worked. No, but when it you consider the time it was released as well in 2001, it's incredibly impressive. Like AI up until this point was a bit like you would see in something like Doom or in like yeah. Duke Nukem, for example, which is one of the games that we're not talking about, where they mostly just sort of wander around. And if you are within sort of a certain range of them, they'll just fire their gun at you. Yeah. I Whereas think... in Halo, they would actively try and hunt you down or they'll move into cover or yeah. they'll run away if you're doing particularly well against them. And your friendly AI was also doing some similar things too. Mm. Like, obviously by modern standards, it's not great, but for the time it felt ridiculously well integrated within the experience that you were having within the game. I sometimes think with Halo that the reason why people think the AI is good is be- is mainly because some of the characters run away when they get scared or outgunned. Out mm. And I saw, and I look back and I'm like, I think that was the main thing, was not necessarily that the AI was smart. It was more that the AI was reactive. Yes. Right? And yeah, so yeah, they yeah. felt more believable because they reacted to you, whereas traditionally AI, even if they would hide in cover or whatever, they would just keep coming at you and they wouldn't really change their behavior depending on the scenario. But I think in Halo, it's the fact that they react a bit more to to your actions and how mm. the fight is progressing that kind of really helps it feel better than it is in some ways no for sure absolutely perception is, is just as much a bigger part of actually mm. the, the main creation of it itself like if you perceive it as good even if it isn't particularly good it still works you know yeah uh another element about halo that a lot of people 
give it credit for, maybe more credit than it deserves in a way, because it wasn't until Halo 2 that it came in, which is its multiplayer, specifically yeah. its online multiplayer and LAN capabilities. Right. And the Halo 1, I don't think, had any online multi. Did no, it? Was Xbox no. Live Arcade a thing? No. I don't think so. No, not straight away. I think it was with Halo 2 that it became sort of proper online as we would think of it today. Halo, uh, had, sy- Halo had System Link, right? That was yeah, the thing. Yeah. Where you, could, you could bring multiple Xboxes together, multiple TVs. Ridiculous to do now like but but, but people but, loved it you yeah know, people would set up like lan parties for halo which right. you know is insane <laughs> yeah it really but cool. is but but and and the thing is is that it when you then also think that for console gamers purely console gamers you've only dealt with two three four player multiplayer and yeah. first person shooters need more players than that especially yeah. on some of the big levels that, that they designed in halo you know you really need more than four players yeah so you to wanted be that able like to... 8v8 sort of feel exactly, like 16 exactly. people in total so yeah. that is a that is a strong a strong thing and you know something that definitely made a huge difference to halo's success and also you know showed that multiplayer is very important for an fps's success yeah, alongside is. single player um and yeah. that is very much attributed actually to one of the games that we're not going to talk about directly but we're going to talk about an element within the games and that is with the multiplayer with call of duty mm. now personally call of duty is a wonderful game but i don't think it does anything to define the genre other than just being a very good example of the genre mm. right but it's multiplayer particularly from call of duty 4 onwards i would say defined fps multiplayer from there on in Right. It's almost like FPS multi... Because we're talking a lot about single-player games here, and we have yes. touched a bit on multiplayer, but really we're talking about first-person shooters, the single-player experience as a genre kind of thing. And you're right that I think first-person shooter, multiplayer first-person shooters, even there's like even within that, I feel like there's two genres. There's competitive and non-competitive, and, yeah. you know, sort of within that, you know, Goldeneye versus call of duty or yeah, Counter- yeah, counter-strike sure. kind of and thing and you've also got like size versions as well like games like battlefield where you have like right. 32 on 32 or whatever right you know, feel very different to like small like two on two three on three death matches within say quake or unreal tournament or whatever exactly and like also modes like deathmatch versus yes, capture the yeah, flag yeah. and onslaught conquest you know all of these kinds of things there's so much there um and yeah call of duty 4 especially was absolutely a big definer you know most fps's most multiplayer first-person shooters now have like you know awards and and an yeah. upgrade system and all of yeah. that and the cod basically invented that yeah it also invented the way in which you find matches as well like mm. matchmaking systems were still reasonably primitive at this point and i remember specifically playing call of duty 4 for the first couple of times uh, a land party that i went with you mm. and i was amazed at how easy it was to just jump in and start playing straight right. away like yeah. there was no you have to look for a server's which yeah. was so normal at that point. Like, you know, playing yeah. something like Counter-Strike, you'd have to, like, look for a real server and, like, connect to yeah. it. And I hope people wanted you there and hopefully you could slot in. No, there was just such a simple matchmaking system in, in Call of Duty 4. And yeah. and it's still done that way even today, pretty much. You know, no things really changed in that regards. Mm. But it also didn't just do that, but it was also like you had class-based systems where mm. you could sort of build your own separate loadouts with different yeah. gun types beforehand rather than having everyone having the same weapons. You know, you could sort of, like, min-max your approach with with perks and it gave you so much freedom to play the game how you wanted to play it within a multiplayer environment be it like just a deathmatch or like a you know capture the flag or like a, mm. a, a search and destroy type thing it just felt so fun to play and mm. it was super tight as well like yeah. the net code for the game must have been phenomenally good because 
even on like crappy broadband back in 2008 like it still was yeah. almost never a problem with lag unless like you know it was just unplayable yeah it was either yeah. like perfectly fine or just unplayable there's no sort of like oh it's okay it's kind of crappy today yeah <laughs> you know so i think it's not worth talking about it from a first person shooter perspective necessarily but mm. from a multiplayer experience within first person shooter games i think it is still mm. very much the the gold standard yeah agreed agreed and it wouldn't be an Octal FM episode without talking about games as a service. Oh, and <laughs> Hiss. the next and final first person shooter that we're going to talk about is also the most recent on this list uh, mm-hmm. and also Bungie again. Uh, and that is Destiny. Mm. This is controversial. I think uh, Destiny... Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't have picked it, if I'm honest with you. It's not one that I would have picked out from the list of games that we created. Destiny is, you know, was not... was very successful. It was very terrible at launch. Mm. Um, it's improved a lot from launch and by the end of it. But, but I don't really want to sort of talk too much about that. I really want to sort of talk about why I think Destiny is interesting from a genre perspective, mm. from a, you know, developing first-person shooter as a genre. You know, we talked a little bit about how, okay, multiplayer is really important for first-person shooters, you know, and you've got Call of Duty and things like this. But with Destiny, there's sort of two aspects to it. I think that where I don't think Destiny really try pushes forward the FPS genre too much is in some of the mechanics that we've talked about that we've that so far we've been talking about pushing forwards you know where with with things like halo where it feels really good um and, and with half-life and things like that and with destiny from a first person from a core sort of first person shooter shooting things point of view it was great right it was really really good yeah. uh, because it was bungie and they took everything that they learned from halo and they put it in in another console fps and, and they made destiny the thing about destiny that i think is really interesting is um, why it sort of is driving fps forward in a different way is that destiny is a sneaky mmo right oh very much like, yeah in the sense um, and i say sneaky it's not really sneaky everyone knows it's an mmo but bungie never said it was an mmo they no, never not, wanted not to say it was release, no. like it was a shared world game you know and it did a lot of clever in some ways we could say destiny also defines the mmo genre in a way in that they actually did a lot of things like you know automatic instancing and yeah. you know all of that kind of interesting stuff that, that and clever stuff especially with destiny 2 as well many games have copied a similar sort of style from there yeah. on too that aren't necessarily first person shooter games but there are the third person ones or they're even like rpgs or action rpgs or yeah. mmos and even you know but then but destiny to some extent has a similar sort of vibe to things like diablo 2 yeah you know in a way like the way you get your loot and you build your characters and you go on mini right. raids you know and, and that's the thing like it's, it takes some of the really like hardcore things about mmos or like mmos hardcore mmos from sort of like this era not hardcore from an everquest era yeah. if you if you listen to our episode about mmos you'll you'll know that sort of trend where hardcore <laughs> becomes you know becomes easy but like yeah like it's it's such a grind it was always about the grind with Destiny. It was always about doing the the raids and the mm. quests and stuff over and over again. It had, you know, things that reset every week. It had, 
very slightly incrementally better loot over and over, you know, which was 100% Diablo and 100% WoW, you know, just yeah. hugely. It basically was WoW and Halo put together. That's Destiny. Which know, a lot of people didn't realise until they started playing it because yeah. up until this point, they assumed it was just the next Halo. And this is the thing is like, when we talked about World of Warcraft, we talked a lot about how World of Warcraft brought... MMOs to people who didn't ordinarily play MMOs because by by bringing Warcraft which was traditionally an RTS game into an MMO they brought a new sort of breed of MMO players who weren't traditionally MMOs MMO players in a way Destiny kind of did this again it basically made a console MMO that actually worked unlike yeah. every other console MMO before it yeah. it was for first person shooter gamers and but they didn't tell you know i don't think co- people who played cod would have played destiny if they were told it's an mmo right no, because they wouldn't not. just like they wouldn't play world of warcraft but, it, but when they were playing a first person shooter and enjoying that element of it and then they were given that little dopamine hit of getting that you know orange item right and knowing that that's going to make them better in this next like level that they're going to go into it still attracts you in the same way regardless of what kind of game you like yeah. Exactly, exactly. And I think that that is just really interesting. And yes, it did an absolutely abysmal job of launching and being a thick, being a good thing for a long time. But the fact is, is it was still hugely popular because oh, yeah, the, yeah. the mechanics were so good. And th- at this point, this is like the most polished shooting in a console game can be you know like it's like it doesn't get better than destiny than shooting things at destiny because all the weapons feel amazing the combat Mm. feels great the loop is great everything always feels just right you know we never talked about shields in halo but that was like a huge thing um Mm -hmm. for for changing the pace of halo and and that's repeated like regenerating health and stuff like that exactly um but yeah like that's why i sort of i wanted to talk about destiny because i think that yeah, it like takes at this point. It's sort of like I don't know what more you can do to make f- shooting feel better in a yeah. game, uh, especially on console. Apart from maybe VR is sort of like the next, you know, the next frontier maybe for 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 feel of of shooting. But Destiny really goes okay. Well, now let's turn it into this. You know, like now let's take the the most addictive genre out there and put that on top of first person, you know, amazing first person shooter mechanics. I think what's also quite interesting about Destiny is the fact that up until this point, most of these games had either solid multiplayer built in or they had mods that then utilized that same game for make solid multiplayer. Mm. You know, for example, like Half-Life itself didn't have multiplayer, but it had like, you know, things like Counter-Strike. Right. Um, Whereas, like, Destiny's multiplayer is only good in PvE, to be honest with you. Like, the PvP side of things was an absolute mess. Yes, it was. Because it was just impossible to balance these PvE mechanics of your classes and your weapons, etc., against real people. Yeah. So, weirdly enough, despite how good it is to play and feels to play, it's kind of not fun to play against other players (laughs) most of the time. Because unless you are literally, like, of the top 0.1% of players, you're going to lose it never really worked out and also but interest i don't think they ever wanted it to feel like a super competitive pvp no, you no, know because they also not. didn't have like a ladder system and things like that which was you know halo 2 did um you know i think they sort of they wanted it to feel more like a cooperative yeah fps pve game it's, it's just interesting because like up until this point i would say that most fps games were very much about the pvp yes 100 um, but this was sort of like a move towards more pve style gameplay for this type of game no you're absolutely right you're absolutely right that, that kind of wraps up the main list of games we feel define the fps genre mm. um we did have a couple of like honorable mentions that we want to discuss very briefly um so one of the ones that we were sort of almost torn to put on the main list itself was armor believe mm. it or not 
mostly because of what it did for the genre and the gaming landscape as a whole, if I'm yeah. honest with you, rather than the game itself. Because the game itself is sort of like a military sim style game. Very, yeah. like, aims very much for realism yeah. to the detriment of its gameplay a lot of the time. Yeah. Uh, very, very, very janky. Like, physics barely work. Things like just explode from each other with, like, you know, clipping yeah. uh, assets and stuff like that. But it was... It has a very strong niche following of like military sim people and RP and stuff, but it did proceed to generate things like DayZ, which yeah. was Armour 2 in fairness, but still. Yeah. Which then proceeded to spawn other sort of similar like zombie style survival style games. Yeah. Which then proceeded to generate Fortnite style yeah. uh, battle royale games, things like Players Unknown Battlegrounds. Yeah. So in a way, it had mods of mods, which then became more important than the game itself, but you had to still at least acknowledge the original product. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And actually related to that, Gary's mod as well is sort of something that I would like yeah, to touch Yeah, we never really upon. touched on Gary's mod, but I mean, that in itself is is so important to the gaming landscape. You know, how, mm. how many times have you seen people play Gary's mod, you know, hide and seek and trouble right. in terrorist town and, uh, and death runs, but also all of the, like, the the map scenarios that you could build within it for mm. like you know a straight up oh new game experience yeah exactly it's that sort of emergent gameplay you know that was the thing with armor with that hyper realistic physics simulator um, effect with all of its glitches effectively gave you this like wonderful emergent worlds that you could you could do stuff in and that's where sort of daisy and, and like you say like PUBG and stuff like that and garry's mod um that's sort of the the combination there yeah and then things as well like uh, Fortnite and mm. Apex are currently incredibly important with their battle royale systems. They are first-person shooters. They rely very heavily on very fast-paced gameplay. Fortnite I know Fortnite's not a first-person shooter, but <laughs> Apex it's still yeah. similar sort of vibes. You yeah. know, very similar gameplay mechanics, um, and they are very much the current trend within video gaming. Yeah. Yep, and we've also not talked about, we've not covered any like standard 5v5 first person shooters. Like we've talked about Counter Strike a little bit and also like Overwatch and things like that and Valorant, you know, more recent ones as well. Like those sort of like, you know, squad based um, first person shooters and the multiplayer. Rainbow side Six of Siege and the other yep. Rainbow Six games, very different style of game as well. Yep. Um, not we didn't really talk too much about the big games like your battlefields, yep. where you have like you know twenty, thirty six and sixty four on sixty four sort of th- sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, we also didn't talk about um, Far Cry or Crisis, you know, mm. which is very important within its own little genre, its own little pocket of mm. first person shooting. You know, yeah. like Crisis was very much the standard for like you know pretty games for the time, yeah. but it was also kind of fun to play too. You know, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so many things like so many you know so many games so many subgenres as well and we've really only just scratched the surface and we may end up returning to some more as we run out of broad genres we'll probably return to some of these subgenres at some point yeah so. for sure uh and i and, guarantee uh, there's some games that we've not talked about that are arguably as important to the fps genre as a whole that maybe we've just forgotten about or we've just glossed over, etc. So if you feel that was one that's been missed particularly important, mm. do get in touch. Yep. Uh, maybe we'll do a follow-up episode or we'll do a follow-up soundbite discussing some of the things that you guys think we've missed out on. Absolutely. You can get in touch with us by emailing us, show at octal.fm, or come and find us on Twitter at octal.fm or Facebook, facebook.com forward slash octal.fm. And yeah, and until we talk about one of these FPS subgenres, uh, I've been Gelada. And I've been Sefran. And catch us again for another episode of Oxal FM very soon.
Yes, exactly. But why why is Doom so important? Uh, what made it so impactful? You need to answer this because you have a better understanding of Doom I, than me. Well, I'll tell you there, Sephiroth, what that... <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll just do it again. Do you want me to... I can... No, 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 it's it. fine, it's fine, I can... And they, uh, they changed it so much, they kind of made their own engine out of it called Gold Source or Gold CRS. S-R- Gold SRC. No. Is it Gold SRC or Gold S- SCR? Of Gold SCR. And that there was then It was used... SRC. It was SRC. I'll just make... Yeah, I'll use the wrong one. <laughs> <laughs> I've done it all now. <laughs> That's an outtake. <laughs>